Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks again for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for giving us the real estate to make this podcast, as well as the equipment. We really appreciate working with them. If you haven't already, be sure to rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting service. We would uh, love a great rating and a great review from you as well. It really helps other people find this podcast. And as always, if you have any feedback, send it my way. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, Republican political operative Mark Weaver. He's a specialist in crisis communications as well as several other areas, something of a uh, polymath. Yeah, he's a little bit utility player, if you'd rather go with a baseball metaphor. So tell me about him. What's he like and what kind of work does he do? He does a lot of communications work. He does crisis communications is probably his big thing. But as you will learn from listening to this episode, he also does litigation. He's currently a special prosecutor right now, and he still does all of that. And he runs campaigns. That's like, I, I kind of wonder when he has any free time when you think about it. Right. Yeah. He uh, seems like a well-rounded guy with a lot of different interests, which isn't that unusual for people attracted to politics. Just kind of, it does let you give an opportunity to like pretty much do a little bit of everything. And uh, I guess I don't want to give away too much, but I learned that he has some hidden talents too that I had no idea until he started researching this. So he's one of those guys that's really, uh, you see him quoted a lot in the media. He's somebody the reporters work with kind of in the background sometimes too. So he's just been around for a long time. But, um, uh, you know, I, I feel like I learned something about a little bit more about him as a person when we did this interview. With that, let's get to the interview that Andrew and I did with Mark Weaver. So uh, we are joined today by Mark Weaver. He's a Republican political consultant, owner of Communications Council, which is kind of like an all-purpose communications firm. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So first off, we like to just kind of get into our guest's background. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here in Ohio? Sure. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and was uh, working in politics early in my career while I went to grad school and law school at night, and uh, was eventually appointed to be spokesman for the Justice Department in Washington, during the final year of the Reagan administration. I was the youngest Justice Department spokesman ever at that point. And so came to love Washington after a year there and eventually joined a national communications firm there that had work all around the country. In one of the states they told me I'd be spending a lot of time in was Ohio. So I started working in Ohio doing crisis communications for government officials, but mostly political campaigns for people like Bob Taft, Betty Montgomery, several Supreme Court justices, members of Congress. And after five or six years of doing that, uh, one of my clients, Betty Montgomery, had became elected the first woman attorney general in Ohio. And my wife and I were living in D.C. We had our first child. And Betty called and said, how would you like to move to Ohio and become deputy attorney general? Uh, and so we didn't want to raise our daughter in Washington. So we, although my wife and I are both Pennsylvanians, we became Ohioans and we moved here. And uh, I started in the Attorney General's office for five years as Deputy Attorney General. And then after that, uh, rolled out and started Communications Council and became a partner in a law firm in Columbus doing media and election law. So Pennsylvania and Ohio both kind of have like fit the Rust Belt profile. Um, is there something about working in this area of the country that you like? My wife and I love the Midwest. Uh, we will not go back to the East Coast. We, we are Ohioans by choice and we will stay here. It's funny when we drive, we say driving home, meaning driving back towards Philadelphia. First of all, we start hearing the accent along the Pennsylvania Turnpike. If we stop and talk to people, you'll hear it. Toll collectors, people at the food places. 
and we, we never knew there was an accent till we left. And then we also start seeing the attitude of people changing. There's just a faster pace, a little more rude, uh, and we have come to really like uh, the Midwestern sensibility. And so although we have many of your friends and family back on the East Coast, uh, and I'm back there regularly for work, um, we love Ohio, and we are now going to be Ohioans for life. Cleveland's got a little bit of East Coast in it, I think. So I think maybe we have like the rudeness of the East Coast with, I don't know, the, the prices of the Midwest or whatever. I'm not really sure. So. Cleveland's different. Uh, having <laughs> done as many races in Ohio as I have, I've done dozens of statewide races. I've had to learn the difference between media markets and regions. And you can't get much different than Cincinnati and Cleveland as far as the sort of people and the attitude and the, the approach to life that they bring. Um, and we'll move on from this, but are you a soda guy or a pop guy? Soda. Yeah. Eastern right. Pennsylvania is soda. Western Pennsylvania is pop. And so I'm soda. So uh, people in Ohio mostly know you for the political work that you do, but you also have, you know, we were talking about a little bit off air, a, a background in, in criminal law and you even do some of that stuff now. So uh, one thing that we found when we were researching this, that you were appointed as a special prosecutor in a case involving Sean Great, who's a serial or accused serial killer in Ashland County. Um, how did you end up on that case? There's a gag order from the judge that doesn't allow me to talk about the trial, but I can tell you that I've been a special prosecutor in 10 or more counties around the state over the last several years, prosecuting either conflicts or when a prosecutor needs help. They have mostly been sexual assault, rape, child molestation cases, which is where I prefer to do my work because I have a passion for victims and trying to help victims of that sort of crime. But I knew the prosecutor in Ashland County, and he was overwhelmed with the amount of work, and he asked the judge there to appoint me as a special to help him with the case. And the case is still pending. Um, many of your listeners probably are following it in the news, and I'll be able to talk more about um, the work we did in that case when the trial is over. So how does, um, there are a lot of lawyers or people with legal, with law degrees who are in politics, but they don't necessarily use them. So it's sort of unusual that you actually find yourself in a courtroom like that. Um, what's, uh, what's similar and what's different about preparing for a trial versus like comparing for, uh, preparing for a campaign? Well, what's different is that there's the rule, rules of evidence about what you can say and what you can't say. And in politics, there aren't, aren't those hard and fast rules. And there's also a, uh, a real-life difference. I mean, when I'm prosecuting a rape case or a child molestation, I'm working with a victim whose life has been terribly traumatized, who I want to be the advocate for and want to help that person. And I want to also um, stop any potential or prevent any potential crimes by putting the, the rapist or the sex offender in prison. Uh, so, so those are different. But what's the same is the persuasion that you do with a jury and explaining complicated concepts to them and trying to bring them onto your side is very simil similar to the messaging we do in politics and crisis communications where you're trying to convince the court of public opinion that you're right and that, that you ought to listen to this point or that point. And so uh, jury trials are interesting for me because I enjoy the persuasion process of trying to bring a jury along with you as you make a case. And I find that political campaigns and PR campaigns are very similar in that respect. So you say that you do mostly sexual assault and child molestation tr yeah. uh, cases whenever you're uh, prosecuting. Yeah. How do you even get into that? I mean, that seems like a really difficult line of work. It is. When I was Deputy Attorney General, I had a lot of lawyers underneath me and several on staff who had been prosecutors who had done jury trials. And I had been a lawyer for a while, but I'd only ever done smaller cases than civil cases. I found a real big gap in my resume. I felt like I couldn't really participate at these meetings where we were talking about criminal trial strategy. And so I kind of made a mental note that someday I'd like to do that. 
Well, a few years later, a friend of mine was elected prosecutor down in Adams County, which is southern Ohio, and he had very little help in his new job. And so I made a deal with him. I said, if you let me come down and try some cases and kind of mentor me throughout the process, I will work for essentially free, very little money. And so I did that. This would have been back in 2001. And he started giving me more and more responsibility and handing me more and more cases. And I gravitated towards the sexual assault and rape cases. And then once I got known for doing it, I would go to prosecutors' conferences, and that's where you find people who need a special. They have a conflict for some reason. Maybe one of the witnesses works at the office, or maybe, for example, I prosecuted police officers sometimes, and there's a conflict because the prosecutor knows the police officer. So once you get known as someone who's willing to take one of those conflict cases, your, your name gets around, and so you get appointed in to handle either conflicts or when there's more help needed, like in Ashland. So what's harder, a, a campaign or a trial? I think a campaign's harder, really. Uh, campaigns are longer, and uh, there's a whole lot more comments from the peanut gallery of and, and, and people who like to second guess how you did it. Uh, and most criminal cases don't have big audiences. Only on TV are the uh, is the audience full of people watching a criminal trial. Most criminal trials I prosecuted have had a dozen at most. Uh, people in the audience. The, 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 the Sean Great trial is different, obviously. It's a much fuller audience. But uh, So you don't have a lot of people second-guessing you or giving you feedback about how you did in a jury trial in most of the counties where I've prosecuted. Uh, and so I think a campaign is harder because getting your arm around how people think, particularly in a state like Ohio with uh, millions of voters, it's a much more cerebral process than people know, the kind of polling and uh, digital targeting we have to do to persuade people. So you mentioned the peanut gallery. I think sort of the ultimate peanut gallery is social media. And that's, you know, I think really has defined the era of communications that we find ourselves in now. And that's obviously changed from maybe when you first got into this stuff. And so uh, how has it changed? You know, how, how does the approach to your work change, you know, in the era of social media and the era of fake news and everything that's been going on? That's a good question. When I first started doing communications, I was public information officer for the police department in my hometown. And I was doing this part time while I went to law school. And... Uh, the only way I could communicate to my citizens was either sending a news release, which, by the way, I typed on a typewriter, uh, to the newspaper in hopes that they would print it. And then once a year, I put together an annual calendar and a report, which we would mail to every home. Uh, and that was largely the way we communicated to people in my town, which is a large suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, nowadays, when I train public information officers in similar municipalities, I tell them in their pocket they have a 4K quality camera, they can take photos and videos. They can be instantly shared with their residents by Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Uh, they can host news conferences where everybody can watch without having a television set. You can just watch it on Facebook Live or on Periscope. And so the tools that uh, government communications officials have available to them are so much stronger and, and can go around the traditional news media in a way that has forced traditional news media to do more things like this podcast, which is to dive in to the social media arena and become uh, relevant in that area so that people will continue to want to get their news from um, traditional news sites that have credibility. So I remember recently there was the fatal shooting of a couple of police officers in Westerville. And I remember seeing you basically were kind of getting out there and saying, um, 
I have permission from the family. These photos are real. You may use them. Uh, is, is that the kind of thing that you have to do more now, you know, given the, the volume out there? It's a good example. Uh, one of one of my clients is the National Fraternal Order of Police and the Ohio Fraternal Order of Police. So we do police-involved shootings all around the country. And I was in Nashville, Tennessee, when those two killings in Westerville happened. I was in front of a group of FOP, Fraternal Order of Police leaders from around the country, and I was speaking on crisis communications. And someone literally pulled me off the stage and said, can you come take a break? Um, we've got two officers killed in Westerville, Ohio. We need your help responding to the communications side of it, right? And so I sat down with my laptop in the hotel lobby and started typing out some messages from the FOP, asking people to sort of pray for these widows and maybe help them. And I turned to one of my contacts and said, we really ought to have a GoFundMe page. And so they said, what's that? And I explained what a GoFundMe page was. And I said, these, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to donate to these families. And so using one of my colleagues, Matt Dole, I got on the phone with him and we created a GoFundMe page in about five minutes and started pushing out the link through approved channels. Within two weeks, we had raised $1.1 million through the GoFundMe page and other related fundraising that came from that for these two widows. And they were so grateful of the community's support of them that they wanted to thank people. There were thousands of people who donated from around the world. But they were also very hesitant to be interviewed on television. They had a fear of television news reporters, which I think might have been unjustified because I work with a lot of TV news reporters and they're perfectly good people. But they wanted to do something. So what I wound up doing was I interviewed them myself. Matt Dole and I interviewed them. I, I interviewed one. Matt interviewed another. And we used our own iPhones. And we used our own microphones. And uh, we got high-quality footage of them. And then I, as you described, I actually used my Twitter feed and said to the reporters who follow me, I'm about to send out the actual footage of the interview of these widows. It's the only footage they're ever going to have publicly. They're not going to speak publicly. One woman, uh, Jamie Jo Ring, allowed me to film her children, her daughters, drawing pictures of their father in heaven and little thank you signs with coloring. Uh, with her full permission, I took that video and pushed that out as well, and then that allowed other media to capture that. And as a result, we're finding that the distribution channels are changing because you don't need a professional TV cameraman anymore and you don't need a distribution network. I used my iPhone and I used my Twitter feed, and we were able to get the message out about the Westerville widows simply using social media. So another aspect of uh, the, the influence of social media is that I guess people are uh, subjected to a lot more stuff than they used to be. Um, is it difficult to break through when you have something that you kind of want to you know, get out there when you're competing with all these other sources of information? It's a good question. It's true. Uh, when, I, when I go in to talk to cities, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina last week meeting with the city council, helping them with crisis communications. They had a big riot down there a couple of years ago, and they're trying to... Um, strengthen their their communications efforts so that maybe they can communicate better in the future. Um, one of the things I tell cities like that is, if you don't build up your Facebook and your Instagram and your Twitter feeds and follows now, when a crisis happens, we won't have the audience to speak to. And so as a result, many of the classes I teach for law enforcement or for cities or for counties is how to do interesting and quirky and funny things on social media to attract followers so that when there's a missing child or when a crime needs to be solved or when you need to warn people about an impending natural disaster, you've built up the followership. So I always kid my class. I say, you know, essentially my mantra is on social media, you should tell people come for the puppy videos, but stay for the lost children. And so finding ways to do things in a way that's interesting and funny has a, a way of building a follower list so that when there's a crisis, you can communicate with that group.
That's interesting because, you know, some media have been kind of vilified for that. I think BuzzFeed is probably the most typical example where everybody talks about, oh, they have, you know, puppy and cat videos and whatever, but they do do some very hard-hitting journalism and they kind of operate on the same way. So it's interesting to hear that you as a communications professional also kind of think that way. Yeah, people want to have fun on social media. For the most part, people want to have fun. And so, you know, I was talking to a police department in, uh, in Pennsylvania uh, at a conference a couple of years ago, and one of the people said that she was trying to think of something to put on social media. It was a snowy day. She walked outside. She saw two officers coming off their shift. She said, guys, would you mind jumping in the snow and doing a couple snow angels? And they were completely perfectly compliant you know they're full uniform they jump down in the snow they do some snow angels she gets a little video of it she puts it up on facebook the darn thing goes viral because people think it's interesting to see something like that or if you see a cop doing a dance off with some kid at a festival that's always funny to see an eight-year-old kid and a cop dancing some modern dance move and so bringing the light-hearted stuff in does attract more people to follow you and then when you need to you can use those same channels to save lives and prevent crimes and do the role of government which is to distribute information to people who need it So we had Jerry Austin on our show a few weeks ago, and he's this kind of old school ad guy. Um, A lot of that sensibility sort of permeates him, I think. Uh, And so so we we talked to him a little bit basically about what makes a good ad. And So you also do advertising work as part of your sort of portfolio of stuff. So in, in your opinion, what makes for a good political ad? Well, Jerry certainly knows good ads. I know Jerry well. He and I were both co-chairs, the co-distinguished chairman of the Bliss Institute in the 2012 election. So Jerry and I go on the lecture circuit together. We do our little routine. He'll always tell you he's retired and he doesn't do it any anymore. And he'll point to me as somebody who still does it. But he's got a good he's got a good eye for a good ad. Um, to me, a good political ad is one that gets someone's attention and helps them remember one key piece of information. And so my clients will tell me, oh, everybody loves the ads, so the ads are great. And I'll say to them, we're not getting a good sense of whether it's an effective ad unless you can ask them the following question. What do you remember about the ad? And if everybody tells you largely the same thing, and if that was the message that we were trying to advance, then we have achieved what we're trying to achieve. Give an example right now been watching playoff hockey and there's one ad about um, a woman who's talking on the phone to a customer service rep. I think it's supposed to be her as a different character and she gets really excited when she learns something and she does a little dance. Um, I have no idea what the commercial's for and I've seen it 15 times. And so it was funny, she's attractive, it was well-directed, but I don't know what they were advertising. And so advertisements are not good or ineffective unless the listeners or the viewers come away with the same information, largely speaking. And so if I'm doing an ad that wants to sh- give you an example, it wasn't my ad. Um, some, some candidate for office uh, last cycle, I think he was a Democrat, wanted to prove his bona fides as somebody who was a pro-gun Democrat. And so he had been in the military. And so on camera, with a blindfold, he disassembled his M16 and reassembled it all in 30 seconds with a blindfold while talking to the, camp, camp, to the camera about one thing or another. I watched the ad. I was blown away by it. It was absolutely stunning ad because everybody who watches that ad must come away with, you know that guy? He knows guns. He's not pretending to own guns. He didn't just go down to to the gun store and buy a gun for the commercial with a price tag hanging off it because all of a sudden I'm a newly uh, sanctioned gun owner. There's a guy who served in the military and trained with that weapon and and is so good at it that he can 
disassemble it and reassemble it in 30 seconds blindfolded. That's a good political ad. Does your approach to that change in an era where people increasingly like myself don't have cable and, you know, just have, you know, unplugging and and that kind of thing? It does. Uh, Our firm was one of the first to use... uh, digital radio for political ads. So we did a, uh, uh, a Pandora ad back in 2012, which is one of the very first, it might've been the first for Congress for Bill Johnson, one of our clients who's the Congressman from Eastern Ohio. And Bill would tell us that people would come up to him and say that they actually liked listening to the ad because they thought it was interesting that there was an ad on Pandora. And as part of the creative, the announcer was pretending to look into your playlist, whoever you or the listener are. And that a Justin Bieber song was about to be played and made a little joke about that. So we find ourselves doing Spotify ads, uh, Pandora ads. We do a lot of YouTube pre-roll ads. So if you want to watch a YouTube video, you need to watch a pre-roll. Um, most of our TV ads will appear in Facebook form, um, but with captions, because about 80% of people don't look at Facebook with the sound on, so you have to add captions. And so uh, political advertisers and all advertisers are finding ways to use traditional video in non-traditional and newer places like Spotify, YouTube. Eventually, I imagine Netflix will probably have some form of advertising. So there were uh, a lot of ads this last cycle um, that kind of uh, I heard about them everywhere that I went. And what, so one of the things that happened in the governor's race particularly is that there are a lot of attack ads that were you know, kind of being traded Uh, That was also true of a lot of the state legislative races across the state. And so we were just wondering, um, is there an art to doing a good attack ad? There is. There is. The first thing is to convince the candidate that their, their opponent is not an evil person and shouldn't be treated like one. Because those ads, where you come out with the opponent just a terrible evil person, often backfire and are very ineffective. And so what you rather do is try to convince the candidate that by bringing out something that's obviously true and then using humor, if possible, to make light of it, uh, is going to be much more persuasive. Students, welcome to German 101. First, and so I did an attack ad. I, I sent it to you um, earlier today. It's uh, There was a state senator who was from coal country in Ohio, and he had gone to a conference in Germany sponsored by the government of Germany, and part of the conference was how to get rid of coal power. Coal power. In the future, will there be any coal energy plants left in Germany? Nine. Now, here's a recent American visitor to Germany. This is State Senator Lou Gentile. The German government invited Lou Gentile. Move towards alternative energies. Well, that's not a good thing to do uh, if you're a senator from the eastern part of Ohio where there's coal companies. So we put together an ad that highlighted his trip, but instead of dark music and deep voice announcer, we used a, uh, an actor pretending to run a German class where he was teaching the German class different German phrases and he comes around to essentially saying, uh, you know, can you say, uh, how do you say job killer in German? Oh, and all the class responds. Yeah, I want to ask you to do a German accent. I'll yeah, I'm not that, good at it. Yeah. We found an actor who was good. And then the students all respond, das ist Lugentile the opponent and, and he goes that's right das ist Lugentile job killer that's right class dismissed <laughs> and it was a funny approach to bringing up this mistake that the senator had made which was to miss votes and take this trip to Germany and learn about how to get rid of coal power and so ads like that I find are much more effective than the kind of the slash and burn ads so you said that maybe attack ads can backfire why do you think that well over the years so many political ads have been overdone by so many campaigns that voters just don't believe them anymore. And they wind up um, 
being angry at the candidate or not believing the next thing the candidate says. And so politicians already have a credibility gap with a lot of voters, the same way some used car dealers have credibility gap with buyers of cars. And in order to uh, address that, you have to be much more clear about the proof for your point that you're making, and you have to do it in such a way that's memorable so that somebody retelling the ad to their friend can, can properly explain what happened, which is why when candidates approach you with four different points they want to put in an ad, you have to gently explain to them a good ad makes one point, and it makes it well, and it makes it in a way that's memorable. But So people complain about attack ads, but obviously they work. Like, Why do you think they work? I've got a segment. I, I, for years, I taught advanced campaign management at the University of Akron, which is a graduate program. You can get a master's degree, essentially, in campaign management at Akron. And so I taught the graduate class. And so I have a series of slides I would show my students on this exact question. And then I would tell them about the fictional town that has two competing restaurants that are open on Sundays, you know, Bob's and Bill's. And Bob and Bill both send out positive advertising about why their restaurant is better. And some people go to Bob's and some people go to Bill's. Well, then Bob gets a health department notice that there's some rodent droppings in the kitchen and that eggs are being stored um, above temperature. And then Bill does a mailer that takes a copy of the health report and mails it to the town. Who do you think is going to go to Bob's anymore? Nobody wants to go to a restaurant that's got that sort of health problem. And so I, that's not negative. That's factual. It's true that Bob had Bob's restaurant had the, uh, the health problems. And people are much more likely to make a decision based on negative information than they are positive information. Does that hit close to home, Seth, with your family having the pizza place? We did not do any attack ads, uh, even though I was featured in one. Were you? I was. But of course, you also met all the health department conditions. Oh, of course. It's a fine place to eat. It was also like 10-year-old me. It's, I, you know, I sometimes do the voice around the office. I don't think I'm going to do it here, but I'll show you off air. How about that? Let's do that. That's fun. So what's your favorite ad that you've ever done? Boy, I've done so many over the years. I've I literally produced thousands of ads, and um, at any given time, um, I have different ones. So it's hard to say. I did, the one I just told you about was my favorite radio ad from the last cycle with the German class, and still people talk about that. But uh, it's, it's like anything else. When you, what's your favorite story you've ever written in the newspaper? You've written so many. Yeah, thousands or yeah, whatever. So I just, at, at the, at the, when I start an ad, I don't like it. And, and throughout the day, it's getting better and better. And as you add music and, and you polish it a little bit, it's only after it's finished and people start reacting to it do I tend to like it. But I'm, I'm my own biggest critic when it comes to my ads. And I guess before we move on from advertising, uh, in Ohio, there's all these different media markets and there's all this sort of like, I guess, diversity. So how do you kind of navigate that as, you know, if you're running a campaign statewide and you're having to speak to all these people from disparate places? Sure. Well, running a campaign statewide in Ohio is really hard. I, I did, I've done statewide races around the country, South Dakota, North Dakota, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Virginia, a lot of different places. And Ohio's unique in that, um, that we're so different in so many different places. You can, you can run ads uh, in what we call the river markets, which is the, the West Virginia television markets that bleed over into Southeast Ohio. And you better have a different kind of announcer and a different kind of approach than running it in Toledo. It's just different folks there. And so understanding the nuances of these media markets is crucial. And understanding the history of those areas is important as well. Um, I, I, uh, I will be the first one to admit this. I've never said this publicly, but I severely underestimated Dennis Kucinich, 
years ago in a state senate race when I was doing an incumbent state senator's race and Dennis Kucinich ran against him and ran a silly ad holding holding a tire talking about something he had done when he was Cleveland mayor and I just thought it was clownish and ridiculous and I did not understand and appreciate the depth of love for that fella in part meaning Dennis Kucinich in parts of western Cleveland and out to Lakewood and that whole area which is where the senate district was so my lack of understanding of the history of that area uh, was a lesson for me to not underestimate some people in certain places. You mentioned Dennis Kucinich then. He actually, uh, he lost pretty badly in Ohio, but he won Cleveland and he won Parma, I think, too. <laughs> well, the reason I mistaken. just said, right? I so, mean, because people know him. Yeah. And what, what, what do you think it is about him? I have Because well, he's memorable. I, I, he's an interesting person. It's going to sound like I'm a fan of Dennis Kucinich. I'm not. I wouldn't vote for him on a bet. But he's an interesting person. Uh, and I did a focus group uh, in Cleveland uh, September 10th, 2001. And I was scheduled to do another one September 11, 2001, but we all know what happened. And so I was up in Cleveland. I was doing a focus group, and I went around the table and asked people who their member of Congress was. And at the time, I don't think he was in, in Congress. And, and if he was, he wasn't everybody's Congress. But like three-quarters of them said it was Dennis Kucinich. And then I asked him who their state senator was, and I had him write it down, too. And several of them wrote down Dennis Kucinich was their state senator and their congressman. He just was a memorable person. They knew who he was. It's like if you ask me about basketball, I'm, I'll say LeBron James, and then I'm done. I have no other names to give you. I couldn't tell you any of basketball. I'm so so you're saying fan. Dennis Kucinich is the LeBron James of politics? No, <laughs> I'm saying that people who don't pay attention to politics could give you one name of somebody who stands out for whatever reason. And in the politics, it's Dennis Kucinich. For me as a non-basketball fan, I know about LeBron James, but I couldn't go any deeper than that. So people not paying attention to politics remember the people who act differently and in a memorable way. And uh, our old friend Richard Cordray is not as memorable as Dennis Kucinich is certainly up this which way, which is why I think Kucinich did so much better up the, up here in Northeast Ohio. So part of politics, too, is that you're engaging with sort of like a disinterested audience. Oh, right? absolutely. And that's become more and more true every year. Uh, winning a political campaign is, is the art of persuading people who not only are not paying attention, but they don't want to pay attention. They think politicians, by and large, not everybody, this is just 60, 70 percent of the people, they think politicians are clowns, unworthy of their focus and attention. And they, dev- and they, meaning the voters, devote their attention to other parts of their lives which are more interesting to them. And politics is not one of them. So communicating to people who are not paying attention is a lot like the assistant principal at the high school dance trying to make announcements between songs. Nobody pays attention and nobody cares what you have to say. They're there for other reasons. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for state house happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting capital letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. 
Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So tell me a little bit about crisis communication. Like, if I'm in a crisis, what does a crisis communicator do for me? Have you ever seen Scandal, the TV show? I have seen Scandal, Olivia Pope and her red wine. So I'm assuming you sit around your apartment staring into space, drinking red wine and uh, romancing the president, different men. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So he doesn't do that. I don't think that's not what crisis communications is. No, no. What he does is he comes in when, you know, basically when it hits the fan, he comes in and he helps kind of. Uh, or even really before, kind of, he was talking. He talked about that a little bit, and helps guide whoever his client is, sort of through what is likely to be uh, tough times ahead. Uh, literally, the crisis, I guess you could call it. And that's sort of the basis of what he does, and he does it with a lot of different organizations. He does it with, you know, uh, labor unions. He does it with politicians. He's done it with just public figures in general. And he sort of comes in and helps guide through the media because the assumption is that it is going to be a story and this is a story. So how do you kind of frame it as your story as opposed to letting your uh, quote unquote enemies sort of dictate the story? All right. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Mark Weaver. So you've been called the Olivia Pope of Columbus. Do you like that designation? No. Well, first of all, I've never watched that show, but I found out that it's a very stylishly dressed uh, woman who does crisis communications for high-powered people. So when people uh, tell me that I've been called that by different journalists, I say that I'm much less stylish than she is. You look okay. I mean, people just yeah. have to imagine, you know, on the on the airwaves here. But you know. yeah, I am I am not stylish at all. And um, but I do. I, I will say this: that um, I have found myself advising a lot of people in a lot of difficult situations. Um, I've been in some very interesting places in my life. I, I, as you know, I, as I said, I was spokesman for the Justice Department. A, a few years later, in the early 90s, I directed Ronald Reagan in his final television appearance before he would go into seclusion, which was probably the greatest professional day of my career, was working with him for a morning and directing him. Uh, so I've been with governors and senators and um I briefed Joan Rivers on her first press conference after her husband committed suicide. Just a lot of different weird places I've found myself over the years. But lately, over the last several years, nearly every day is helping some high-profile person through a crisis of some sort, whether it's a university president, say a council member, a member of Congress, or some CEO who's dealing with some level of crisis. Uh, And so to the extent that Olivia Pope on whatever show she's on helps people through crisis, that part's true. What made you pick crisis communication? Was it, you know, crisis communicators are paid very well because, you know, it's a hard job. Was it the challenge or was it the paycheck or how did it happen? I really stumbled into it. I was, uh, I came here to be deputy attorney general and I found that that job, we, when I was there, we had 1,500 employees and 50,000 cases. And I had a staff of about 13 or 14 people whose job it was to talk to the press and communicate on behalf of the office. And I tried to encourage them to handle most of the press calls and the problems. But when they couldn't, they'd bring it to me. So the joke was, by the time it got to me, it was on fire. I had to put it out. And so five years of doing that, particularly after I'd been at the Justice Department taking press calls every day, um, you build up a skill set. And because I'm an attorney and a practice as an attorney, and because I've worked in politics and in government, I tell myself that when there, I tell people when there's a car crash at the intersection of media, government, politics, and law, 
I've been I've been at that intersection before, and so I can probably help you out of it. And so there are some areas where I wouldn't be helpful, where I'm not, you know, you wouldn't send me to Hollywood to defend people in scandal, knowing the Hollywood press. I've never done that before. But at that particular intersection I just mentioned, over the years I've built up a lot of experience. You mentioned a couple of cases just a second ago, but I'm wondering, are there any other notable uh, crisis, you know, cases that you've had to take on that sure. really stick out? Well, uh, Charlotte, uh, I, I handled the first Charlotte uh, officer-involved shooting three years ago where there was not a riot. I was not involved in the one the next year where there was. Um, I was brought in by the Steubenville police during the famous Steubenville rape trial where there were national media and riots and, uh, not riots, uh, demonstrations. And then Anonymous targeted, the, that uh, internet hacker group targeted the city, county, and school district and shut down their website. Uh, so we were pushing back while that was all happening. When I was at the Attorney General's office, I worked on the first death penalty uh, and the first execution since it had been outlawed in Ohio in the 60s. And there was a lot of hullabaloo around that, a lot of demonstrations and crisis and drama surrounding that. And then uh, some of the things I've involved with I can never talk about because I have... Uh, I have confidentiality agreements with clients. I have one high-profile university right now that is right on the edge of bubbling over into a huge national crisis that would certainly be in the national news. But they have had me on board now for a, more than a year to help them contain it from getting uh, to a reputational risk. By the way, it's not an Ohio university. It's out of Ohio. And so some of my most important work gets done when there's never any stories, not because we're covering it up, but because we've managed the news in such a way that people find out about it with all the context. And so, you know, the reason why the Harvey Weinstein story was so big, I had nothing to do with this story, but is because it came out of nowhere for the general public. From what I read, it was a pretty much of an open secret in Hollywood that this was happening. But it came out of the blue for the public, and that's why it impacted so, so hard. And so what I encourage people who've, who've been involved with dumb things or mistakes by a company or lawsuits or whatever is if you can gather the facts and start communicating your own side of it early on and do it in a way that's truthful and get it all out there quickly, you're less likely to explode in the news. So you said what you sort of use the phrase that it's not a cover up. It's more of getting the facts out there. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's bad if you try to cover stuff up? I guess, what's the, what's the approach? I there? guess everybody defines cover-up differently. Um, you know, um, we all have inside thoughts that we don't speak. So when I'm talking to somebody, I'll tell you the truth, but I won't tell you everything I'm thinking. And that's not lying. That's just being careful about what I say. And so, for example, in a lawsuit, um, there are things we find out as lawyers that were, that were done, that were stupid, that the other side doesn't know about and is not going to find out about. Well, it's not our job to tell them. Right? So if you get sued for a car accident and... Uh, you were uh, texting before you drove, but nobody knows that. It's not your job to call up this person who's suing you and say, by the way, I was texting before I drove. That's the other side's job in an adversarial system to figure out what happened. And so as a crisis communicator, I tell people, let's find out what we know happened, what went wrong, how we can fix it, and how we can stop it from happening again. And then let's go tell our story. Let's roll that out. And when you do that, people will give you all sorts of credibility. Years ago, I was hired by the Ohio Central, uh, Central Ohio Down Syndrome Association. They called me on a Friday night to tell me that their longtime volunteer treasurer, the mother of a child with Down syndrome, had just, uh, they just found out that she'd been stealing from them and had stolen some $75,000 from them. And in a few months, the biggest fundraiser for that group was coming up. It's called the Buddy Walk, a very deserving group. And the, the board wanted to hire me to cover up this theft. And I said, are you going to file a police report? And they said, yes. 
I said, well, then there's no cover-up to be had. It's going to be public here in a few days. Why don't we find out what happened? Let's announce this ourselves. We're going to hold a press conference and announce this happened, to which one of the board members looked at me and said, hold it, we're paying you for this advice? We're going to announce this ourselves? And I said, yes. Think about when your kids are playing in the backyard and there's a dispute. Whoever gets to mom or dad first is the victim. Whoever gets there second was the aggressor. You get to define your own terms by getting there first. So we did. The next Tuesday morning, we held a big press conference, invited everybody, and we rolled out exactly what happened, how we found out, how we're getting the money back, and the new accounting system that was put into place so that it could never happen again. It was one day's worth of stories about it. And some months later, I ran into the board member and I said, how'd that buddy walk go? How much money did we raise? He said, Mark, we raised more money than we'd ever raised before. And that can only be because people found the response to this bad news credible. And instead of blaming somebody else, we were open about it and we took care of it in one news cycle. And now that continues to be a great organization that raises money and does great things. So you talked a little bit about what goes into actually handling the crisis. Is there anything that you specifically avoid when you're you know, doing crisis communication? Well, yeah. I mean, often I'm, I'm often brought in as a counterweight to lawyers who think it's brilliant to say no comment. So I'm, sometimes they're brought in for that exact reason. In fact, I, I'm speaking in Kansas City in a couple of weeks um, to a bunch of government communicators uh, at a conference for the Public Relations Society of America. And my topic is arm wrestling with your lawyer, how to win every time. And so the concept is when your lawyer looks at you and says, we can't talk to the press about this. Uh, there's some legal reason that I can't explain to you, but I'm not going to tell you because you're too dumb the why we can't talk to the press. I'll, get, I'll often get brought in to essentially say to the lawyer, hey there, counsel, I'm also a lawyer as well. I, at Ohio State for 20 years at the law school, I taught the course on what lawyers can say to the press. Let's talk Rule 3.6. Go ahead and make your, raise, raise that concern you had with the client. Why don't you raise that with me? And then they'll say, well, you know, you can't comment during litigation. I'll say, let's go through the rule together and see if that's really the rule. Of course, it's not the rule. And so uh, what I try to do is bring the lawyer along to allow us to say something that will help in the crisis, but that will not hurt the lawyer's case. Because too many lawyers are trained that if we talk to reporters, then we'll say something stupid and that'll make our case harder. And by working with the lawyer to the point where they see that there is something we can say, we can start explaining to whoever our public is, whoever the group we're talking to, what happened and how we're fixing it in a way that doesn't make the lawyer's head explode. And I think of a crisis, I think of the like Penn State and Sandusky mm-hmm. scandal over there. You know, not all of them have a rosy ending. I mean, when do you say, is there a point where you say, okay, it's time to back out? Like, we, this is done. We got to just pull out everything. Well, I don't like working for people who won't listen to me, right? And so uh, about every third day, I'll have somebody say, well, Mark, well, you should get hired by the president and go give him some advice. Ha ha. Right. And I'll say, well, I only listen. I only take clients who will listen to me. I only will work on a case where the client listens to me. Because I can give you direction, but if you're not going to take it, what's the point? You don't think the president would listen to you? Uh, no, no. Well, most politicians won't listen to me because most politicians think they're brilliant. But this particular president, I think he'd look at me and say, hey, I've never met him. He doesn't know who I am. I think he'd look at me and say, Mark, I got here being this way. So why do I need to do anything differently? And if that's his attitude, he gets to have that attitude, right? And so I want to work with somebody who says, 
Mark, what you have is what I need. You're a lawyer. You've worked in government all these years. You understand the press. You understand social media. Help us put together a strategy. And I had a client in another state about three months ago that did that. I got called by his lawyer and said, we're about to have some bad facts go public, and we need to be able to put our frame around it and explain exactly why this happened. Can we hire you to do a plan? And they worked with me and did everything I asked, and we had all the plan together, and at the last second, the issue got settled with a non-disclosure agreement and will never be made public because of the non-disclosure agreement. But they were willing to work with me on who the messengers would be, what we would say, how we would say it, who we would say it to, how fast we'd get it out, because I didn't want our adversary to break the story. I want I want my client to break his own bad news as opposed to my client's critic to break the bad news. Have you ever regretted taking on a client? Hmm. I, I sometimes regret them because they, they argue with me about, <laughs> about, you know, paying me, right? Some of them think that they ought to get free advice. And so some, for early on, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, have contracts. And then later there'd be disputes over the bill. So now I have contracts and there's less disputes over that. But I can't say that I regret. I mean, there was a client once who I did his campaign in Pennsylvania. And I'll never forget this. I was very young. It was my first statewide race. And he called me the day before the election. He said, Mark, we need a radio ad on this one such station. Could you could go place a buy for that? And, you know, the last day they're going to run ads all day on election day. And I said, great, that'll be, uh, I think it was $800. And uh, I said, I'll come by and I'll pick up the check and then I'll go make the, oh, Mark, just, uh, I'm good for it. Just place it, you know, use your own money. <laughs> well, dumb 26-year-old, I guess I was 26, dumb 26-year-old, like, great, no worries. So out of my own checking account, I front the money. We run the spots. He loses. I send them my final bill. It's got that little $800 thing. And months go by, he doesn't pay it. And that was, that was a lot of money to me. I was in grad school. I was in either grad school or law school. It was a lot of money to me. So I called him up. I said, hey, are you going to pay that of money? He's like, you've made enough money. Let's just contr- let's consider that your little contribution to my campaign. <laughs> and do I wish I had not done his campaign after he lost and didn't pay me? Yeah. So the worst clients are the ones who lose and don't pay you. I'd sooner have someone lose and pay me. You, you want someone to win and pay you, but if I have to pick, pay the bills. <laughs> uh, so there have been a lot of crises over the past year with public officials yeah. here in Ohio. You know, yeah. you've got Cliff Height and... Uh, Wes Goodman and now Cliff Rosenberg with the FBI investigation. Did each of them handle their their crises appropriately, do you think? Well, they're all different. Each of them is different. Cliff Height was after the fact. Cliff Rosenberger is before the fact, right? Um, Perales was right in the middle of a uh, campaign. Who's the other one you mentioned? Wes, Wes Rutherford Goodman. was uh, – Wes Goodman, right? He was um, – he had he had his own problem, and then there's Wes Rutherford had one as mm. well. But I think that was a year before. Yeah. Um, the, the commonality I see between all of these is that they've got lawyers who are clamping down the communications, and then they've got political people who, in many cases, don't understand how to communicate during a crisis, or they're being blocked by the by the lawyer from doing that. And so, each of the, what's interesting is each of those crises has their own set of people advising them. And I know some of the people we've mentioned here. Obviously, I work in Columbus, and so I do a lot of work in and around Columbus, so I know some of these folks involved. And what I think what they're missing is that the public sees this as a larger tapestry of incompetence and corruption. And by the way, it's not one party. Because uh, particularly in, well, even Cleveland here, we've had some of our county commissioners oh, go away. Plenty, yeah. And in Columbus, we've had a city council member go away. So it's not unique to one part of the state or one party. 
but I don't think the individual players realize that they are seen as just another character in the cast of corrupt and incompetent politicians going by the voters. And so to the extent that it builds up a narrative is what I find interesting. And, you know, if you look in the newspaper today, Democrats are suggesting this is going to be another 2006 where there was a Republican scandal. And Bob Taft was the governor back then. He was one of my clients. I was the general consultant for his campaigns. and I, don't, I think that remains to be seen. I think there's a high degree of cynicism amongst voters about all politicians, and I don't know that they ascribe one party as being particularly more corrupt than the other. Would you have handled any of those cases differently than the way they were handled in the public? It's hard to second guess without knowing all the facts of what's under underlying, like what the legal issue was. I always tell the lawyers when I'm on a case, listen, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not here to be the lawyer necessarily. Don't let me say anything that's going to hurt your legal case, because that's job one is to make sure there's not legal liability. Uh, But to the extent that it doesn't hurt your legal case, I'd like to be able to tell the truth and tell it all and tell it fast. And that's the that's the hallmark of a good crisis communication response. What's true? Find out all the facts and then come and come to the press and say it all at once. So, for example, I wrote an op-ed in the Nashville newspaper last month, or maybe it was two months ago now, after the Nashville mayor had to resign in disgrace. She was found to have been having affairs with the chief of her security unit. And so the Nashville paper printed my op-ed because I was critiquing the crisis communications of that team. And although she did come out and apologize for it, there were little pieces of the story that were not put out early on, how much money they spent, what hotels they went to, whether she had been reimbursed, a variety of things. And so rather, although she was telling the truth that she admitted the affair, she did not tell it all at once, which was essentially a way for the newspaper to do story after story after story to build up this drip, drip, drip effect, which meant she had to resign. There was just no way she could have maintained her her credibility. And so uh, that's an example of someone who probably could have been saved. She probably could have stayed on as mayor had she handled it in a more graceful way, uh, in a more complete way. Because my view is that voters are very forgiving if you're truthful with them. They recognize that people make mistakes. A uh, great example, uh, one of my clients and friends is Russ Martin, who was the sheriff of Delaware County, which is south of here. And he found out last year that some clerk in his office had forgotten to bill a company for use of the cruisers during special deputy duty. The way this works is you're a company, you can hire security from the local sheriff's office as long as you pay for everything. Pay for the deputy, pay for the cruisers, called special duty. Through some clerical error, somebody had forgotten to bill this one company that had had months and months and months of security, and so it was thousands of dollars that had not been billed. It was just a big mistake. Talked to Russ about it, and he wanted to completely own up to it. And so I helped him do it. I just kind of walked him through it. He came out publicly and announced the mistake himself and said, I want to tell you a mistake I made. He didn't throw anybody under the bus, didn't mention anyone's names. He said he made the mistake. And so he wrote an op-ed in the local paper explaining how it happened, that it was his fault, that he called the company and asked them to pay it, and they agreed to do it, and that he apologized, and that he explained what he did to make sure it wouldn't happen again. And from the feedback that he heard and that I heard afterwards, people thought more of him because he did that, not less of him. They thought that he had owned up to a mistake, explained what happened, and promised to not do it again. And now he has even more credibility than he had before. And that's a textbook way to handle a crisis. He's a pretty good social media presence, too. He is. He's fun to watch on Twitter. Uh, You'll find elected officials are usually more um, 
frequent on, on social media for no other reason they learn to do it during their campaign. But think about a sheriff. You know, every county has a sheriff, and uh, they get to set the snow level, the snow emergency level, right? Snow level one, two, or three. Back in the old days, when the sheriff had to change the level from two to three, which affects all of us in the public, the sheriff would have to, I don't know, fax out a news release to and hope that the newspapers would announce it or the radios. Now, from the cruiser, the sheriff can simply open up his Twitter account and say, we're moving from snow level two to snow level three. And the thousands of people who follow that sheriff will see that update in 10 seconds. And then hundreds more will retweet it. The reporters who follow that sheriff will go on the air and say that sheriff just said it. And it's a wonderful tool for communication that folks in law enforcement should be using. So I understand you guys talked about Mark Weaver's interest in the First Amendment and working with the media. My thought is when you're dealing with crisis communications, you you want to send a specific message to the media and and perhaps on a surface level, that means having sort of a, a bad relationship with the media, but he doesn't really see it that way? No, and a lot of the times when you think of a PR professional or something like that, uh, there is that sort of uh, no comment mentality that's sort of the stereotype. Uh, he really advocates entirely against that in this situation, though. Yeah, I mean, and he used a funny metaphor. It was like, I forget the exact folksy. If, 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 if you have two siblings and there's a dispute between them, whoever goes and tells mom and dad first is the one who's going to be the victim, while whoever tells second is the you know, whatever, late to the party. Right. So, and it's interesting, uh, you know, a big part of his work is uh, working with law enforcement, you know, uh, police officers, police departments, police unions and stuff like that. So that's a, a group that is kind of naturally distrustful of the media, especially with like, I guess, uh, the whole uh, recent developments when it comes to police and like police brutality and that kind of that public conversation that's taking place. So, uh, but it's interesting that you might think, again, going back to the scandal metaphor, that the job is like, hey, the president's been kidnapped and we need to like quietly solve this problem or whatever. And I mean, you know, so the, that's not exactly what he does as we establish. But there's kind of like, I think, this implication of just like total discretion. And, and it's interesting that so much of his work, I think, is while it's a kind of a package version of events, it's still, I think, built on the foundation that it's, it's good to get your story out there. With that, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Mark Weaver. So your job, a, a lot, large part of your clientele is to sort of train two groups of people that really don't trust the media. I mean, you know, maybe that describes a lot of different groups, but uh, law enforcement and Republicans. Yeah. Uh, so what do you tell these groups about, you know, how, how they interact with the media? Well, th- what you just said is true. It's also true that I often speak to reporters. I was down speaking at the Kiplinger, uh, to the Kiplinger Fellows at OU last, last month. And I'm often speaking at the Ohio Media Law Association, which is a lot of Ohio State Bar Association Media Law Conference, which is a lot of reporters go to. And so what's funny is that each group, I find myself as the skunk at the picnic. So when I'm in front of reporters, I'm trying to explain how law enforcement officials and public officials are good people trying to do a tough job. And I get eyes rolling and murmurs and people looking at me like they don't believe me. And then when I talk to law enforcement, I'll say, reporters are good people who are just trying to do a hard job. And I get the eyes rolling and the murmuring and maybe a few choice uh, curse words here or there. And so I I recognize that there is this, to to coin a phrase from C.S. Lewis, this great divorce between law enforcement 
and, and media in particular. And what I try to do is try to educate each of them what the other one does, right? So I try to educate police that reporters are not out to get you. They have a job to do, which is to find out what happened and tell the public. And that includes talking to your adversary. That includes interviewing your critic. Because when you're the critic, you would like to be interviewed too. They're, they're supposed to be objective. They're trying to be objective. And so many of the times when you have a bad interaction with the reporter, it's because you don't understand what their job is. Their job is not just to tell your side. And then I also try to explain to reporters that law enforcement officers are people who got into it for good reasons. And it's a really hard job. And the stuff they see is really difficult. And the decisions they make are tough. And so uh, neither of you two or anybody who I can think of right off my head in Ohio has been unfair to reporters or unfair to police about a police-involved shooting. But I've seen lots of reporters been really, un really unfair to police-involved shooting. And uh, I've encouraged some of my police clients to invite those reporters to force-on-force -force training where they put them through actual training with uh, simulated weapons where you have to go deal with somebody who might be a regular person who's not a danger or might be someone with a gun who's prepared to kill you and then give you that simulated weapon and see how you react. Now, of course, police officers have more training, but no amount of training can take the fear out of you that you're about to die. And no amount of training can change the fact that there's one and a half to two seconds where you have to decide what you're going to do. And so I find myself mediating, if you will, between these two sides and trying to explain what they do, because both of them are good and noble professions. Both of them are important to the success of our, our, our country. And right now there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of anger between those two groups. You know, you mentioned that Gulf. When do you think that happened? I hear stories about journalists back in the day all the time where, you know, the cops would lift up the rope for them to come by and take a picture or whatever. And nowadays that seems just, you know, bizarre that that would ever happen. Right. So when did, when did that divide between cops mm. and journalists sort of happen? It's certainly over the last 30 or 40 years. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the last couple of years. I think it's, it's been slowly coming. Um, media journalism has changed right just the sources of journalism has changed uh, and and folks with attitudes have changed uh, vice news they call themselves vice news last week sent a gag cake to scott pruitt the epa administrator for his birthday with smokestacks for candles as if to suggest he was a polluter now back in the day that's the something that the opposition party would do in the hopes that journalists would cover it and it was kind of a well-worn stunt to send a cake to somebody and try to get some coverage. This was somebody that claims to be a news outlet doing it. So as, as the flavors of journalism go beyond chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry to the many different kinds you get at, at uh, Baskin-Robbins, I think the credibility of journalism differs but outlet to outlet. And so law enforcement... Um, resents that because they think that some of them are being critical as opposed to just being objective. Then along the way, we have ubiquitous uh, cell phones that we can, um, that people can take videos of police doing their work. And it's never fun to watch a police officer arrest somebody who does not want to be arrested. It just, it's not, it's always involves force. And as a result, depending on the angle of the camera, it could either be actually documenting true police brutality or it could be documenting something that is fully justified and per policy. It just happens to be a particular violent suspect. And so reporters are exposed to that, and they see that, and that can't help but them make them think that some cops are too rough, because some cops are too rough. And 
then when the bad coverage comes, some police, instead of taking it as valid criticism, take it as cheap shots, and they become less interested in working with the press. And then you rinse and repeat, and you rinse and repeat, and now we're several years into it, and so this gulf widens, and I frankly don't know what's going to have to happen for it to come back together again. Is it difficult also with Republican officials who might think the media has a liberal bias or, or something along those lines? <clears throat> it's true. Uh, most Republicans think the, that the media has a liberal bias. <clears throat> there are some studies that certainly that when it comes to donations and voting patterns as far as which party you register in, that uh, the traditional media are far more Democratic than Republican. Having said that, it's not a particularly strong messaging point to go around complaining about the media. And so there are... There are some things, you know, women live longer than men. My wife will probably outlive me. I'm not going to talk about it much. There's not much I can do about it. I'm just going to live my life and try to exercise and eat healthy and do the best I can with my life. It doesn't help to walk around and lament that as a man I might live a shorter life than a woman will. And it doesn't help Republican politicians to spend a lot of time publicly complaining about bad press. Now, you might use it as a way to... to uh, get your base roiled up enough to vote, or you might use it as a way to raise money. Those are two perfectly valid tactics as long as you're talking about truthful incidents. But voters want to know about what you're going to do to make their life better. And it typically doesn't involve listening to you complain about the media. And so I have lots of clients. I remember once a state senator I was working with in the 90s walked in in 1992 to a meeting I was at, and he had a bumper sticker in his hand that he was going to offer up to everybody in the room. It said... Uh, it's 1992, so George H.W. Uh, Bush is running for uh, re-election against Bill Clinton. And the bumper sticker said, annoy the media, vote for President Bush. And everybody thought that was funny. And I said, can't we do better messaging-wise than annoy the media? Is that the reason to vote for re-elect George H.W. Bush? Surely there's another reason than annoy the media. Uh, and so the, the more that Republicans get caught up in the, the, their anger at what their perceived liberal bias is, the less likely they're going to be able to communicate to voters who want to hear them talk about the problems that can be fixed. It always struck me as kind of an easy target, too, you know, when, like the media. It's such a behemoth of a term, you know. You know the, the dispatch isn't the same as Cleveland.com, right. isn't the same as Cincinnati Inquirer, isn't right. the same as The Blade. And, you know, there's no real way. I mean, I guess you could respond with, an editorial, but they're not attacking, you know, the editorial. They're attacking the reporters, and we don't have editorials. Yeah. Listen, I'm the big First Amendment guy, right? A lot of my classes, I talk about the First Amendment. I practice First Amendment law. I've represented reporters before. I negotiate contracts for news anchors and TV TV reporters, so I'm, I'm a big fan of the First Amendment. My view is everybody can criticize the media. Where I, where I differ is where people want to change the laws about the media. Um, or change the laws about what any of us can say, is freedom of speech and the freedom of the press are under attack in a big way in America right now. And I don't mean rhetorically, because people can say what they want, criticize reporters all you want. It's people who want to change the law is where I differ with. Or people who think that the First Amendment is not all that relevant anymore. Um, one of these days, um, I speak often at the journalism program at o OSU, a friend of mine is a professor there, and she'll often have me come in and speak to her journalist class. And she also has a class of non-journalism majors where you get people with much different views about the First Amendment because they're not coming up in the journalism program. One of these days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a stunt with, with the professor's permission where I'm going to get a kid in the class to go along with it. 
where they're oh, here's our here's our teacher today, Mark Weaver. I'll come in and I'll start talking, and then I'll get in a little bit of an argument with this kid who's really in on the joke, and he'll start saying something that's controversial, and I will whip out my phone and pretend to call the campus police. And then we will have somebody ready dressed up as campus police who will come into the room, handcuff them, and drag them away for saying something critical. And, you know, in the moments where the students are stunned that that just happened, I'll look at them and say, that actually was fake, and it couldn't happen for real in this country because we have the First Amendment. And it won't happen to you because we have the First Amendment. I think we need more people to appreciate the value of the rights that are outlined in the Bill of Rights, and I worry that too few of them appreciate the value of freedom of the press and freedom of speech. So you have worked in the past for both uh, Mike DeWine and Betty Montgomery, two Ohio attorneys general, and uh, both of them ended up running for governor. Um, What is it about that office that you think makes it a potential stepping stone for people with higher ambition like that? We've not had an attorney general be governor in a while, certainly not since I've been in, uh, in Ohio. I, I moved here in the 90s. Uh, Mike DeWine will, will probably be the first. Well, actually, we will have the first now that I think about it, right? So you're going to be Cordray or DeWine. So we're about to have our first attorney general as governor since long ago. Um, and people say that people make the joke. It's the old joke. AG means aspiring governor. Ha ha. But we haven't had that much experience of that happening here in Ohio. I think the kind of person who who runs for attorney general already has the political DNA, and there's a bit of a type A show off in the political DNA, and then they also have the lawyer DNA, where there's some of that similar qualities, right? So you merge those two strands together, and you get a pretty powerful need to want to be in charge. These are student council presidents on steroids, right? And so I know Mike DeWine very well. I was the general consultant for both of his attorney general races, and he's a friend. And I know Richard Cordray. I've done three races against him, and um, we have a very cordial relationship. They're both competent, strong lawyers who would do a fine job, um, you know, in, in their own way, advancing their own policies. So I don't know why AG attracts it. We don't see too many treasurers running for governor. But we have seen Secretary of State's run for governor, and we've seen auditors. I think it was Jim Rhodes way before my time, but I believe Jim Rhodes was state auditor before he was governor. Uh, But that office can attract a lot of press attention, so it becomes a good stepping stone to higher office. And Richard Cordray found that out, and uh, I think Mike DeWine is finding that out now. So we were talking about this off air, but there's a fun old photo of you and Rich Cordray in the late 90s. And I think that Cordray might still have the same haircut as he did in that picture. Uh, what, what, uh, can you tell, tell us a little bit about how you came to work with them and kind of you know what you think about them? Sure. Richard Cordray and I were both on the panel that was preparing one of our colleagues to go argue a U.S. Supreme Court case. Richard is famously a, a former law clerk at the Supreme Court and a very smart constitutional lawyer. He and I both taught uh, at Ohio State Law School for years. I don't know that he still teaches. I stopped teaching there last year and now teach at UNC Chapel Hill. But um, So he and I knew each other by reputation. And so uh, even though he was a Democrat getting ready to run against my boss and I was a Republican Deputy Attorney General, we both found ourselves on the same panel preparing our colleague for this Supreme Court argument. And somebody thought to take a picture of us at the end, like, let's get the panel together and take a little snapshot memorializing our little practice session. And so truth told, there's probably seven or eight people in the photo. But uh, he then the next year ran against Betty Montgomery for attorney general. And I took a leave of absence and ran her campaign as her general and media consultant. 
And uh, so after she defeated him handily in 98, somebody thought it'd be funny to, to clip out the photo of him and I and put it in a frame and give it to her as a gag gift. And she found it very funny. And so on the credenza behind her office in the attorney general's office, she had that frame there for the next four years till she left. And I was helping her clean her office out on her last day, and she was just giving stuff away to people because she had collected so many little um, memorabilia items. She said, Mark, I'm going to give this to you because it's you and Rich. And so I then took it out of the frame and then put it in a folder or something. And then a few, not long ago, I found it, and I thought it would be a great hashtag throwback Thursday photo for Twitter. So I put it out there and was really surprised how many people reacted to it to see me and Rich Cordray circa 1997 or something uh, helping someone prepare for a Supreme Court argument. Do you think that he's a strong candidate? Um, Richard Cordray is a brilliant person who also I think is a, a fairly ethical person. He's got, um, you know, he's got a strong uh, family man reputation. I've never heard anything bad about him in that respect unlike some other people who've run for office uh, in our state. Um, I, I don't think he's particularly strong politically. I don't think he has the charisma that some political candidates have. Uh, Ted Strickland, I didn't vote for him, and I uh, disagreed with him on most things, had a certain folksy charisma about him that helped him a lot when he was elected. Sherrod Brown, despite his um, far-left policies, has found a niche and found a way to communicate to people in a way that folks think he's sort of the average man's um, voice. Richard Cordray has not found his political voice yet. Uh, he's smart as a whip, always prepared on issues, uh, has a great reputation in the party. I think President Obama will support him and raise money for him. I think Elizabeth Warren will raise money for him, but I don't think he connects well with voters. So is that why you think that you were able to beat him three times? No, I beat him two out of three. I did oh. the special election for attorney general in 2008 right. with Mike Kreitz as the candidate. We only had $100,000, but we did our best. Uh, so I won two of three. But listen, I, I rarely is it the consultant who's the reason why someone wins. Um, I probably shouldn't say that because it probably doesn't help my business, right? But most of these things are driven by other factors. And uh, I think Mike DeWine was the better candidate in 2010. It was a narrow win, but nobody thought we could win. You know, the weekend before the election, People were calling us and, and wishing wishing us luck, but saying, you know, you, you made a good try and you should feel good about yourself. And, uh, you know, we a few of us believed we could win. And, and on election night, Mike DeWine became the next attorney general, and I think that set him up to be our next governor, frankly. So neither uh, Rich Cordray is sort of viewed as boring. I think n nobody would argue that Mike DeWine is this really, like, exciting guy either, at least as far as the reputations go. Um, what would you, I guess, advise those candidates to do to counteract that sort of the image? Yeah, DeWine's an interesting guy. I did not know him well before he ran for AG. I had donated to the charity for his daughter, Becky. Uh, she died in a in a, a car accident, a car crash involving a drunk driver. And there's a school named for her in Haiti where the poverty level is just stunning. And so I read a story once about it and started sending money to this, this school for poor children in Haiti. So I didn't know him except as a donor to his daughter's school. Uh, but he, when he asked me to be his consultant for attorney general, I got to know him better. And, um, of course, I was not around in the 70s and 80s and early 90s when he was you know, running for office. But he is a force of nature in this, in this state. There's probably no more durable brand in Ohio politics than Mike DeWine. And the last one you could say that of was George Voinovich who, of course, famously was the running mate with Mike DeWine when DeWinovich ran for governor. 
years ago. And so although um, you would not hire Mike DeWine to host a game show, that would not be his skill set. He, uh, he is... Uh, he is hardworking. He never lacks for energy and uh, evinces this caring about Ohio and about families and about people that just comes through and everybody who sees him. So again, no best dressed in class awards and no game show host hiring for Mike DeWine, but solid public servant. I looked that up in the dictionary and there's a picture of Mike DeWine right next to it. Uh, so you mentioned 2006 earlier, and as we've been kind of doing these p- podcasts, we've been kind of talking to people about uh, how this electoral climate is going to be, and a lot of Democrats are hoping that you know the, the background is similar to in 2006 when they were able to have success. Uh, do you think that this is going to be a, a favorable year for Democrats? It's hard to say. I get that question almost every week, either from a client or from a reporter or from a friend, and I give the same answer is... Um, how many weather forecasters can tell you whether it will be a snowy January next January? There's a lot of them who will guess, and there's a lot of them who will look at past data to try to predict, but anyone who tells you that he's sure is lying to you or is a really bad meteorologist because there's no way to know for sure. And so anybody who tells you what kind of year this is going to be is either lying to you or they, they just don't know. Um, if you give me, tell me what President Trump's popularity rating will be in October, and I can give you a better guess. Tell me whether or not the, the Democrat base remains as energized as it has been for the last year, and I can give you a better guess. Tell me whether or not the uh, Republicans who ran through fire to, uh, to uh, elect Donald Trump are still as energized about him in October. With those factors, I could give you a much better prediction. But given that our, our news cycles and our politics seems to shift um, dramatically week to week, it's hard to predict next month, much less eight, seven months down the road. Do you think Ohio is still a swing state? Uh, yes, it is a swing state. It's a purple swing state, but it's growing redder all the time. National reporters often call me right before uh, presidential elections to get the pulse of Ohio. And uh, so I'll take three or four a day, usually in the October of a presidential year. And when they started calling me this in 2016, I started saying to them, listen, you're welcome to keep calling me, but it's not close for Donald Trump in Ohio. He's going to handily win Ohio. Go to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is traditionally a blue state. That's the one to race to to, uh, to watch. I didn't predict that Trump would win Pennsylvania. I just said it's going to be a lot closer than Ohio. And so the infrastructure of Ohio politics um, has been affected by the fact that Republicans have held power in every statewide office except the U.S. Senate. And a brief moment in time where they had the AG and the treasurer and the secretary of state and the governor. Other than that brief little mention there, Republicans have solidly controlled the state since the the mid-1990s. And as a result, the infrastructure of party building and fundraising and volunteer lists is so much stronger. It's not quite the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals. I wouldn't put it quite at that level, but it is a significant advantage that's built in. And so uh, our our party, I'm a Republican, our party has that significant advantage that maybe someday will turn, but you'll have to have a lot of Democrat statewide office holders in place to offset it. Yeah, we had Jerry Springer on the show by phone. He was one of our first guests, and he talked about how he ran uh, for the state legislature and lost, but then I think it was John Gilligan, but there's a Democrat who was governor at the time, helped him get involved, and he got a job doing something. And it's, it's hard to picture something like that today with, with the Democrats. 
Yeah, the Democrats, uh, they don't have a strong bench. They have a strong um, minor league bench. The people who ran for governor before Cordray got in, and some of them got out or moved around to other offices, they've got a strong sort of minor league bench. But they don't have John Glenn's or Howard Metz and Bombs anymore. Particularly John Glenn, what a what a wonderful um, stroke of luck that he chose the Democratic Party, uh, such a, a national hero, and he was the brand of Ohio Democrat politics for years. And then Metzenbaum was sort of the Cleveland version of that brand, uh, much different personality uh, than than Glenn. <clears throat> but who have been the big Democrat office holders that people remember, and that were, who were the Jim Rhodes of the Democratic Party? There just haven't been. I suppose you could say Richard Dick Celeste. It was before my time. But um, for the for people who are voting nowadays, they're thinking of the last 20 or 30 years, and it's hard for them to th- think of an Ohio that wasn't controlled by Republicans. I remember when I was in college and grad school, the Republicans, sorry, the Democrats always had the majority in the House of Representatives in Washington. And I remember being in political science classes thinking, it's going to be this way for my whole life. The Democrats will control the House of Representatives in Washington. Well, it was that way until it changed. But the infrastructure had to change first. And so Newt Gingrich, although he kind of went off track later in life, he built that infrastructure ahead of that 1994 Republican revolution. It just didn't happen because of one cycle. It was a slow change uh, that, that, that we finally saw actually occur in 94. And the Democrats will need something like that. They will need a strong party structure, and, uh, and they will need a strong candidate with charisma to help lead that effort. And as parties weaken, and we've seen parties weakening for 50 years, it becomes much more driven by candidate and much less. Think about Barack Obama. The Democrats won largely in 08 because it was Barack Obama. He was a different kind of Democrat. And as a result, and, and John McCain looked too much like the politics of the past. And so that choice made a big difference to their party. And so one um, sort of mold-breaking candidate can be the start of the change uh, of a party's misfortunes. And so the Democrats in Ohio will need something like that. So let's talk about your album, The Kid Comes Back. Yes. So tell us about it. Yeah, my friends like to make fun of that. It's it's fun. I, so I would, in college and grad school, I played in rock and roll bands in bars to make money on the side uh, and played in many different versions of it. Uh, if some of the people who follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Mark R. Weaver. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I like to make fun of band names. And I pretend that I was different in different bands with funny names. Usually that's, that's not true. But I was in a band once called Chef Eddie and the Food. And I played lead guitar. That's very 80s. And, that's good. Yeah, very 80s. Um, this is late 80s, FYI, but yes. And uh, the uh, I left the band and they replaced, because I went to law school is why I left. And then I was replaced by a much more skilled guitarist who had a ska background. And they changed their name to Dynagroove and became quite the regional band in Philadelphia afterwards. So I did play a lot of music in my 20s and 30s. And so um, before I met my wife, I had gone through a breakup with a woman. And I was at a time when I was feeling like I should write about it. So I wrote some songs and uh, decided that one day when I was married with kids I pro- and had a job, I probably wouldn't be a professional musician. So I, I wrote an album and produced it and uh, got the funding and uh, went into a studio and recorded it with uh, professional, well, semi-professional musicians and uh, held a party and handed it out and then never did another thing with it ever again. And so occasionally people will ask me for a tape or for a song. My kids think I should put it on MP3 and make it available digitally. I don't plan on doing it anytime soon. Some things are best 
left in the drawers where they sit. I was going to say, I scoured the internet looking for it. And no, it there's, there's a anywhere. couple songs that hold up well, but most of them don't. I will say this. I had a wonderful moment about a month ago. My son was home from spring break. He's in college. And I taught him to play guitar and piano, so he is an avid musician. And I was up in my office working, and all of a sudden I hear him playing the guitar, and I hear the song, and I'm thinking, how do I know that song? How do I know that song? Because I couldn't quite hear it because it was two floors above him. And I realized he is playing and singing one of my songs from my album that he had learned on his own. And uh, much better than I could have ever done it because he's a better musician than I was. And I thought that was a real moment. That was a song I wrote in a time in my life when I didn't know whether whether I was ever going to get married and who I would meet and whether I'd have a good life. And here's my son now playing this song. It was quite a thing. And so it's always good for a laugh when people want to ask me for a copy of the album that I did in the late 80s. So who were your influences then? Like, who, who would you compare yourself to then? Well, listen, uh, no, nobody good. I was, like I said, I played in bar bands. People were drunk. Uh, you know, we got paid $40 a night plus all the drinks we could have. So the, we, we were playing covers of people like Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and uh, Leonard Skinner and... Um, a little bit of Billy Joel, a little bit of Jim Croce, mostly mostly rock and roll stuff, uh, stuff that people would like to listen to. We, we never played originals, although Chef Eddie and the food, you should know, had a couple of originals not written by me but written uh, by Chef Eddie himself. And uh, so it was a fun time. I still play guitar just for goofing around, just usually with my son, just for fun because I enjoy music. Uh, but I have learned that there are better people at it than I am, and I leave it to them. And so also in the album cover, you had a mustache. When did you lose the mustache and I why? I did. Um, I had the mustache through... You had it in the Cordray photo, I did, too. too. Certainly through the 90s, probably early 2000s. I uh, probably grew a beard over some winter break and then one day decided to shave the whole thing off and my, my wife probably said something nice about it or whatever. I probably took it to heart. The whole, the axle rod progression. His wife told him to shave it Oh, off did she? Yeah. No, actually, she didn't tell me to. I think what happened was I would typically grow a beard once per winter and then eventually shave it off and leave the mustache and one day I just decided to shave it all off and I think my wife probably said something like, oh, that's nice. And, you know and you're I just saying it don't always look nice. Like what? What are you saying? Yeah, no, exactly. That's the kind of the conversations married <laughs> people have. So no, she didn't have a strong opinion about it. And, and and people who who didn't come of age in the late '80s find those mustaches shocking. They look silly now, and I think that too when I see it. But I think my 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 time of facial hair is done. Well, also I think with that, I think that our time with the podcast is done. So uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking time to talk to us. Thanks for inviting me.